Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Brewers, it's time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer, this is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my brewing brothers and sisters. Greetings, Cretans. Hey. Yes, Chief Cretan himself. <laughs> it's, been, it's been so, how many years at this point? I should really, you would think that I would have a a greeting. Yeah, yeah. Point, right? <laughs> uh, well, I thought you had one, wasn't uh... Wasn't it uh, like your place or mine or something like that? <laughs> <laughs> your place or mine. <laughs> For brewing. Right, right. Yeah. Well, you, you know who, who I think would have a really great porn career? Our good friend John Blickman, perhaps? Oh, yeah. Yes. He he does have a long history of uh, equipment, robust equipment. <laughs> Pretty big equipment, too. Mm-hmm. I think he would bring enthusiasm and passion and you know, uh, you know that that mad genius of his to anything he does. Right. Yes. You know, include and if he decided at some point to uh, turn to pornography, uh, he would bring all that and more, uh, you know, to to his career there, that, like he's done for the brewing industry. He he was like an engineer at you know, Caterpillar. And uh, now he's, uh, you know, doing... Uh, he could bring those fine caterpillar qualities, too. James, James says, Blickman engineered toys, in quotes. <laughs> yes. Blickman has been engineering toys for us all uh, for quite some time now. And they're, they're some of the finest toys you're going to find, uh, you know, for, for homebrewing and for professional brewing. They, they, they come in all sizes. Little small ones and up to you know big substantial ones, uh, depending on what size you need to get the job done. Um, he's got it all, so check him out, BlackmanEngineering.com. You can send him a, a email telling him how much you appreciate that he's paid for this show and continues to do so at uh, feedback at BlackmanEngineering.com. Uh, today we're going to talk about yeasts Very and good. Uh, fermentation and all your yeast and fermentation questions that uh, continue to pour in uh, for the past uh, decade. <laughs> and we're only a decade behind. We'll get there eventually. Surprising um, we've been around this long. 
to have a decade's worth of questions. It's pretty wild. Oh, people have been questioning me for, for decades. True, true. <laughs> I'm sure Blickman is questioning the uh, <laughs> continuing pay for the show, too. Yeah. But that is neither here nor there. That is that is what it is. Uh, <clears throat> first question. Uh, it's about repitching rinsed yeast. Nathan asks, uh, hey, guys, first off, love the show, and I've learned a lot listening. My question is about using rinsed yeast. I rinse yeast from a batch of amber ale by pouring boiled and cooled water into the carboy, swirling it, and letting it sit for about 20 minutes. Then I siphon the liquid into a half-gallon growler, and then and again let it sit for 20 minutes. Siphon from here into mason jars, covered them, and popped them in the fridge. I probably ended up with about 40 mil of solids in each after everything settled out. My question is about how to handle this in the Mr. Malty calculator. With the rinsing, I imagine I'm getting rid of a lot of the non-yeast solids. So do you have any recommendations for what sort of a yeast concentration to use in the pitching rate calculator? One of the settings in the pitching rate calculator was for um, non-yeast material. There was a slider there. And generally, the... Um, default setting was appropriate for you know a, a rinsed yeast there tends to be you know a fair amount of non-yeast material in there it's it's um you know the hulls the, the yeast hulls that uh, you know from dead yeast it's you know protein bits and tube and stuff like that so um i generally would just leave it at the default i'm not sure why i really included it other than i could um, if you find, and the reason I would do that too, is because it's very difficult to overpitch. Um, and at worst you're, you're up by maybe 10% or something like that. It's, it's not that big a deal. Right. I'm drinking, I'm drinking some goo. <laughs> Looks tasty. What is it? I've got tasty goo. I don't know about you, but my goo Ew. is quite tasty. Oh, wow. It is a bourbon barrel age of vanilla and toasted coconut, 12%. Mm. Wow. Nice. That tastes, that sounds really good. It is. That's quite a nice tipple. I got your, your Mandarin. Mm-hmm. Taylor right. stopped by the brewery a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Like ago. Two weeks ago, hung out with the one of the guys from Hopsteiner. And then, um, yeah, when Jay was here and uh, Alibi was here. The collab. Yeah. It's one of the things I'm loving about the five barrel system is all those collabs that I always wanted to do. Finally, get to do. <laughs> so if I've ever told you in the past I wanted to do a collab with you, I wasn't I wasn't bullshitting you. I, I really do, and you know it's just you know the the main system so tied up all the time, and then uh, you know if we brew something crazy, you know it's thirty barrels of crazy, it's, right. it, and now with the pandemic that's harder to get rid of. Uh, but five barrels, I mean, I'll drink the five barrels myself. So, you know, <laughs> we're on, baby. If 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 I told you collab, I wasn't I wasn't shitting you. Let's collab, and I can even get cans in some of it. You know, if we decide to can it, we can we can uh, roll those over and can them. So, yeah. If I'm drinking some area, Evil Three. Come on, you're drinking Evil Three. Yeah, been kept cold, so it's still good. All right, all right. Yeah, imagine if you just keep it chilled. I've had uh, 
cousin, like year old cousin. It's kept cold the whole time. Tasted great. Yeah. I'm like, all right. No problems. I could taste a, a, a hint of staling in there, but yeah. Uh, it wasn't one bad. Uh, let's see here. Let's sneak in one more before we take our first break. CO2 in fermentation. Uh-huh. Joshua asks, uh, first, I love the show and have really benefited from the knowledge presented. Thanks. I've been thinking about CO2 in solution during fermentation, had some questions. I make appro- appropriately sized starters and I have a nice stir plate and have seen a real benefit to my beer. At the same time, I also make meat. The current understanding from people like Ken Schramm and some of the NHC talks I've heard is to drive off CO2 using vigorous stirring during the first half of fermentation in order uh, and adding various nutrients. Uh, my question is, would there be any benefit to running the fermentation on a large scale stir plate uh, to continuously drive off CO2 for all or part of the fermentation? If so, would this then apply to a large beer? Uh, if there was an airlock on the fermenter, I can't see a whole lot of oxygen pickup, but I could see it driving off CO2, keeping everything in solution to work in optimum conditions as being favorable. Love to be able to turn around large beers and meads in less aging time. Any thoughts on this would be much appreciated. Well, it's a whole lot to unpack in that, in that question. That, yeah, uh, I mean, one of it is um, that people believe airlocks uh, keep oxygen out um oxygen gets past the airlock um you know and depending on what kind of uh, material it's made out of what the liquid in it is all that stuff the oxygen will diffuse across that it's not much and uh you know if fermentation is happening the act of scrubbing of the co2 through the, the liquid in the airlock will um you know keep the oxygen you know keep removing the oxygen as it's coming in you use something like a carboy cap that is permeable to oxygen. You know, there's a lot of ways that, that it gets in. You, you know, we've, I think we've answered a similar question to this before about, you know, why don't you put, you know, uh, the whole beer on a stir plate? And we were talking about, well, you know, you're getting oxygen with the, you know, the vortex and all that. But they're saying, well, we'll do it on a closed system. Part of the fermentation character is the... Um, suppression of you know potential ester compounds being produced mm-hmm. uh, from the co2 co2 suppresses uh the yeast in a way that you know if you remove that you could i think you're gonna get you know some different esters you might get some hotter alcohols i would think i think you're mm-hmm. kind of removing yeah. the the restraints from the yeast and you may end up with more rocket fuel than than you, you desired um, I think in something like mead making, a lot of times they want a lot of, uh, higher alcohols. They want, um, you know, some esterification to happen to those alcohols and, and they're looking for that. Uh, well, think, John? yeah, I mean, going back to beer first, um, the effect of carbon dioxide on yeast is pretty straightforward. Carbon dioxide is a waste product. And as you apply or decrease pr- the pr- partial pressure of carbon dioxide on that fermentation, increase, thereby increasing the amount of dissolved carbon dioxide in the beer uh, during while it's fermenting, you, uh, if you increase the concentration, you inhibit 
yeast growth, and you inhibit the formation of acetyl-CoA enzyme, which is uh, part and parcel of, of esterification. It's how it's, it's a mechanism by which esters are formed during fermentation. If you decrease partial pressure, decrease concentration of carbon dioxide, then you, uh, encourage, you encourage yeast growth, um, which can result in higher alcohols, uh, higher uh, esters. Um, and, you know, I mean, so it, it's, it, it's really yeast growth and inhibition or non-inhibition of acetyl-CoA that are the two main effects of carbon dioxide pressure. In mead, I think, you know, the advice to stir and vent carbon dioxide, um, a, you are encouraging yeast growth by removing that waste product. Um, and mead must is a very nutrient poor environment compared to beer. Beer is all the nutrients, almost all the nutrients the yeast need. And, uh, you know, it, uh, you just let them ferment away and they're fine. Mead, I think they need, you know, all the help they can get. So that's one reason they may be stirring more so in a mead fermentation. To answer his question directly, I don't think uh, stirring a beer fermentation is necessary. And as you say, you could end up encouraging excessive levels of higher alcohols and esters, um, as opposed to, say, just an open fermentation where, um, you know, or a shallower fermenter where yeast evolution, or sorry, carbon dioxide evolution is encouraged at normal pressures. Well, there you go. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're uh, doing uh, questions about fermentation and yeast with our good friend, uh, Porno Steve, Taylor Roach, who we haven't seen in such a long time. Yeah, yeah. Pleasure to have you back, brother. Showing his age well. Good to be back. <laughs> right. What do you know? Uh, 65? Yeah. 63? Yep. A long and storied porno career, as mm -hmm. had Steve. Uh, Jason writes, Jamel and John, thanks for a great show. I'm a podcast listener, but I make sure to never miss an episode. 
and my brewing has significantly improved as a result. A question, I have heard about stepping up a starter when working with small quantities of yeast or yeast of questionable viability. How is this done? I've got a couple of vials in my fridge that are at least six months old, and while I'd hate to see them go to waste, I'm hesitant to pitch them into a starter, mostly because I'm not sure of how to handle them. Thanks much and keep up the great work, Jason. Um, there's a book called Yeast that uh, I wrote with uh, Chris White, and it has all the information you need right in there. Uh, pick yourself up a copy. It's got a lot of other good stuff in it too. Yeah. But uh, the simple answer is, yeah, you you make a starter, you know, assuming the viability is weak, you, you don't do a really strong starter. You start with something, you know, in the, you know, 1030 to 1040 range of um, specific gravity range. And um, you go ahead and just do a starter like you normally would try and work, you know, clean and sanitary. And then, you know, the results from that, you go ahead and you decant off the spent starter work. I mean, you can add more to it, um, but you will um, uh, grow it up. You can increase it up to tenfold, but, you know, you, you take the volume of what you had before and you probably go like a five, five X volume. Um, and you can, after you've done the first step, you could go to whatever your normal starter strength is. And then um, you add the yeast to that, grow it up harvest the yeast off of that, do the same thing. And each time you can go kind of a 10 X, uh, uh, increase in your starter volume. The, the problem with doing too much starter volume is that, or too high gravity is that you're just wasting it. Um, it, it doesn't hurt the yeast. Uh, you could take a small amount of yeast and you can pitch it into five gallons, let it ferment out what it can, and then let it settle out, throw away all that wasted wort, you know, and collect the yeast. It doesn't necessarily hurt the yeast, but you're just throwing away money at that point. So that's kind of the reason why we limit it uh, in volume to maybe like 10x or less. Yep. Sounds good. Woo. 12% goo on an empty stomach. That's something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With, with amnesia juice. I don't know if you. Oh, yeah, I remember, remember that, that one. Oh, yeah. I had that. Oh, you do? Yeah. I forgot all about that one. Huh? Are you canning that? Amnesia juice? Yeah, it's in cans. Jeez. 16.5%. Oh, man. Yeah, the cans are limited to about a 20% uh, alcohol. Yeah. Uh, the tolerance of the, the liner, they, they're like, wow. yeah, 20% is okay. If you got, start going past that, it might be an issue. We, we checked with the can manufacturers. So we're going to push that. We're going <laughs> to, I was thinking, uh, yeah, we'll make, we'll, we'll, I've got some good names for some other ones um, past uh, uh, amnesia juice. And then <laughs> people were giving us crap or giving me crap for coming out with it. Like, oh, it's, you know, anything, you know, past regular IPA is, is horrible and shouldn't be made. And it's, cloyingly sweet and it's like i don't know if we've had regular double ipas but somebody was was ranting about how double ipas are just horrible because they are just sugary and dark and it's like have you had anything off the west coast yeah yeah <laughs> your your double ipas are quite nice and even evil three is incredibly easy drinking 
Yeah, it's it's dry and light and mm-hmm. refreshing. Yeah, I can't drink percent. more than one at a time. Oh, you but, have uh, in the past, though. I know. <laughs> I, I shouldn't drink one more than one at a time. But I yeah. love to tell this story. It was one of the first years that we had Evil 3. And uh, I met you, you came up to the Bay Area. We're at the Relic yeah. in Venetia. And you came in and we've got this event going and you sat down, you're here there to, uh, you know, help, help support me and, and, you know, and heretic and all that and and come up and, uh, and uh, I'm like, you know, what beer you want? He's like, I'll just have whatever, whatever the special beer is you got going. I'll have one of those. And so they bring you a pint of evil three and you're drinking it and it goes pretty quick because you've been traveling, you know, you're ready for a beer. Yeah. Ready for a beer. Yeah, that one. And the uh, waitress comes around and, and she asks you if you want anything else. And you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll have another one the same. And uh, have another one. And, and then I think you're about to order your third one. I'm like, John, these are 11.5%. <laughs> you're just like, oh, <laughs> I thought they were like six, seven, something like that. Yeah. But you enjoyed the third one. Too, oh, like, I did. Yes. It's like, hey, I'm not driving. <laughs> but, yeah, that that is a great beer. I enjoy it to this day. And uh, yeah. Rest in peace, Tasty. Yeah. Yeah. And then once I'm dead, what will happen to Evil 3? I don't know. Will it still go on? I think it might. I think there'll be plenty of uh, commemoration brews. There you go. Because I, oh, yeah. I think Mitch is going to outlast uh, all of us. Yeah, no. Could very well be. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have all the porno diseases. <laughs> doesn't drink to excess like uh, you and I do, John. Right. You know, outlive all three of us. Yeah. And of course, Charlie Bamforth is to be around. He'll still be around. Yeah. 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 Bamforth, he's, he, yeah, again, uh, he's a blessed man. He'll, he'll live forever. Yep. Um, and uh, you know who else I hope lives for? Good friends at Brie Chatter, Josh ah. Chenard. Yes. They're just such wonderful guys. So kind, so friendly, so much fun, so so clever. Um, they're great folks to, uh, to hang out with. And uh, they know a lot about brewing, and they make sure they've got only the best ingredients. Uh, you should go check them out. They're up in uh, Sparks, Nevada, you know, right next to Reno. Uh, you can find them on the web, brewchatter.com. Um, and, you know, that's they'll, they'll chatter with you about beer. And they will. Uh, <laughs> uh, they got a great shop there. I'm going to be up there October 16th this year. Um, yeah, we haven't done a lot of travel, but we up there October 16th for their uh, Mo Horny uh, release and uh, right. brew party. Um, which is uh, mosaic hops with Hornendal uh, yeast, uh, Mo Horny. Um, the fires aren't up around them, are they? No, they're uh, west of them. Uh, the uh, um, uh, Tahoe was that? That's the Caldor fire. Caldor is is south. Um, uh, was it Delta? It's Delta. I Delta kept virus trying. Delta Delta complex fire. It's yeah. east. It's right. It's kind of on the three ninety five. 
Um, yeah, air is, uh, you know, questionable a lot of days, but they get good wind through there. So not too bad. Good. I'm looking forward to it. They'll, they'll get, uh, they'll get that all, all taken care of. Um, yeah, let's squeeze in one more before we take another break. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, very official. My old man cheaters on. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, Brewing cleaner ales. Uh, Matthew writes, or Matt writes, uh, hi guys. First, uh, wanted to say thank you uh, for all you do for the brewing community. I wouldn't have a clue if it wasn't for people like you, John P. Melzi, and even Charlie Papazian. Uh, you guys have taught me almost everything I know about beer. I've been making better beer because of your books and Brew Strong. So my question is, I have Jamel's book, Brewing Classic Styles, and I read in there that lagers should first be first chilled, racked off the tube to secondary, then aerated and yeast pitched uh, cool. I believe 44, then slowly risen to 50 and held for fermentation. I was wondering if doing this with ales would also create a nice clean ale only at ale temps. I was thinking of doing this with my next ale by pitching yeast at 60 and slowly raised to 65. I want a low ester ale. My lager turned out great using this method. It's very clear and clean. What do you think, Matt? Yeah, in general, that will uh, produce a cleaner, less estery ale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you just have to be careful that you're not stressing the yeast by going cold, too much colder than the yeast is really accustomed to. Right. The stress right. will produce other compounds that you may not want. Um, it depends on the uh, yeast you're using. Some yeasts, um, not a big deal. Some yeasts, um, they're very temperature sensitive. Right. Um, uh, I've told this before. I was at... Uh, um, Sierra Nevada in their experimental room, and they uh, they were using their uh, well, it wasn't their yeast. I think they were using oh one from White Labs actually. Oh, um, and they were they were fermenting it at uh, like fifty five or something like that. Oh, okay. Yep. And it tasted like a very sulfury lager. I was pretty <laughs> surprised. Yeah, yes. but it was really cool. sulfury. Because at that temperature, the O1 is not going to kick, you know, it's not going to be very active. And you need a lot of activity to blow off a lot of the sulfur. So you could do it. Um, it's, it's a good idea to go to a, a lower temp for, you know, some of this for reduced uh, extra ester production. But if you go too low, like John's saying, could could be an issue. Yeah. Um, Taylor, have you made any loggers or any other? No, or? actually very much stayed away from loggers mm. um, just because I don't have that good of temperature control. Right. Essence is great for making ales. Mm -hmm. It'll pretty much stay there. You know, there's not any extremes either way. And I just throw a heating belt. I throw a towel and a heating belt on the inside to, to mm -hmm. protect it from light. And I just leave it outside in a shady, dark place. Yeah, the, in the and summer just, in San Francisco, that can be like, you know, 40 degrees out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, no, I've stayed away from loggers because I don't have 
a fridge to shove a fermenter in. Well, we need to get you a, a lagering fridge. That'd be nice. I mean, all I have is this. That's all I could get, but it won't fit anything. Definitely not a five-gallon right. carboy. Oh, yeah, you could use one of the smaller fermenters. It's yeah, I could, I could like do a split batch and like, I don't know. You need a lagering fridge kegerator slash kegerator. So when you're not lagering beer in there or fermenting beer in there, you can hook up some uh, taps and tap a couple of kegs. Yeah, well, that requires money. Right. <laughs> it requires a better job. <laughs> well, we'll have to figure it out for you. <laughs> do you. The question is, do you have room in your in your San Francisco uh, living situation? Uh, I can just stack it on top of those things. <laughs> I just stack everything. Everything's vertical here. <laughs> Get a ladder to pour yourself a pint of beer. Yeah, yeah, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> right. Well, we'll we'll see what we can do. <laughs> and try and figure that out for you. And then you, you brew your first lager. Do you enjoy lagers? I love, yeah. I drink all beer. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't think I necessarily have a style that I grad I don't know, gravitate towards. It's really um I mean I used to love stouts a lot. I still do. I find myself drinking a lot of yeah, I guess a lot of lagers. A lot of like yeah. uh a lot of Mexican beer. I, I so a lot of uh Corona with a lime in it. Um, no, not the lime, just Pacifico, like cans. <laughs> it's just easy to drink, you know what I mean? You don't have to. Right. Uh, well, really and you, you did that that trip through Germany. Um, yeah. a lot of great lagers out there. Oh yeah. man, yeah, I got spoiled out there. Yeah, I would, I would love to brew a lager just to be able to drink it. But I find myself making stouts because it's, it's harder to, to mess up a stout, you know? Yeah, they're all good. They're but all I like good. to if I have the right equipment. Be nice. Yeah, go. I've got to I've got to get myself a, a lagering fridge because I've got I've got the general beer fridge, but mm-hmm. um, it's too large to control. Well, and uh, so I've been yeah. thinking about like a small it too large to control. It, it's one of those double door commercial fridges Uh-oh. that's full of food and beer oh. um yeah if you have food in there it kind of messes it up but yeah I, I i got one of those from uh more beer and they 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 hooked me up with one and uh yeah i was able to ferment a lot of beer in there yeah yeah that's the thing is it's it's really too big for what the amount right. of beer i'm brewing these days what i need is i've been looking at these smaller you know like three or four by three foot um mm-hmm. Uh, chest freezers you know good for one carboy to put fridge, a contraption controller not freezer fridge people use those freezers i don't know take fridge they're, they're cheaper but yeah. Yeah. yeah i would i would go with a kegerator do you have a kegerator john no i don't you need a kegerator and then you know you can slip a carboy in there and ferment something or you take that out and put a couple kegs in there and dispense some beer yeah, yeah. okay we gotta get john hooked up too Anybody listening wants to yeah. wants to hook John up and, and porno Steve up with a kegerator, let me know. And then send one my way because I don't have any. <laughs> uh, take care of them first. All right, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this.
Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're talking, uh, I don't know, fermentation? Fermentation, kegerators. Kegerators. Uh, whatever whatever crosses our mind. You know, right. you know how the show works. Uh, <clears throat> him. James writes, Hello, Brew Strong. I've listened to your shows on the importance of good fermentation to make a great beer and has encouraged me to make a fermentation cupboard. I have uh, followed your suggestions on the Brew Strong podcast and I've gone for a free refrigerator, a 60 watt tubular heater and a dual stage temperature controller with a short cycle delay. The cabinet will get its first use this weekend. But you have also talked a lot about the importance of reducing lag time and pitching uh, with an appropriate amount of yeast. I've been a big fan of the dried yeasts, e.g. Danstar, Nottingham, and Safale 05. I normally rehydrate the yeast as per the instructions, i.e. sprinkled on boiled cooled water and wait for 15 minutes, followed by stirring and then standing for another 15 minutes before pitching. I'm finding it usually takes around 8 to 12 hours for fermentation to kick off to any degree. I've also done a show on starters, but this seems to concentrate purely on liquid yeast. Can I make a starter for my dried yeast to reduce this lag time? And how would this differ from that of a wet yeast starter? For example, does the starter need to be aerated like that for a wet yeast? Does fermentation need to complete? And does the five-gallon wort need aerating? Or do I just not go with the starter for dried yeast as everyone in the forum suggested because I will make the yeast weaker before pitching in the brew? I also want to repitch the yeast again, as per your recommendation for making the best beer. Can I repitch 100 ml of the rinsed yeast cake from the dried yeast as per the instructions in the podcast? Or is this different because it originally came from dried yeast? Keep up the good work. This is James from Derbyshire, UK. Big question. Yeah. So, a couple of things. Um, you know, the, the, the thing is with those packs of yeast, a lot of times there's vastly more, if, if those dried packs are fresh, there's vastly more yeast in there already than there is in a lot of the liquid yeast, although that's changing right. you know, as we speak. So if you were to make a small starter with a, a you know, a five or, you know, 10 gram pack of, of dried yeast, depending on how much inert material they put in there, which changes, um, you know, you may be putting too much yeast into a starter and that is, could be detrimental to the dried yeast, depending on how big the starter is. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of why, you know, at least you're rehydrating, which is kind of the important step for dried yeast because, um, some studies I have seen show that if you just sprinkle dried yeast onto the wort, it can kill about, you know, half of the yeast or up to half of the yeast. So rehydrating it pr- properly, um, is a good, good step. Mm-hmm. I would stick with that. If you're using dry yeast mainly, it sounds like he's getting good results, eight to 12 hours mm-hmm. to the kickoff of fermentation. Right. Um, you know, the, the final flavor of the beer will really tell you, um, as far as repitching, um, yeah, you can repitch, you know, yeast that would came from a from a dry yeast. You can repitch it as many times as you would a liquid yeast. Is it different? Um, you know, the 
stress of dehydrating does do things to the yeast. Um, they have that, uh, you know, thermal shock expression, I think, um, which you probably can pick up in the first uh, pitch of a dried yeast. I, I've been able to pick it out in, in blind tastings. I've been able to pick out the dried yeast, but you know, it depends on a lot of factors. Uh, and I think, I don't know for a fact, but I would imagine that the yeast would revert to a non-stressed uh, condition once you've repitched that. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think that you're going to run into a problem with that. I think it will revert to whatever the source yeast was that they started with. Now, keep in mind that um, the yeast that was selected to be a dried yeast is going to be slightly different than a yeast that was selected at, you know, White Labs to be that same yeast, right? Because right. everyone's trying to make a USO5, a, you know, 001 or whatever, but they'll select something slightly different, just like Y yeast or um, Imperial or Omega. Omega or, you know, any of these yeast suppliers, they're going to pick what they think is the best expression of that yeast style. And for the dried yeast manufacturers, what really dries well, right. And survives well. Right. doesn't mean it's, you know, they've selected something inferior. They've selected something slightly different. So just keep that in mind. But I think, uh, yeah, you absolutely uh, can do all that. You could make a starter. I would say if you have a dried yeast that's really old and or you know has been sitting hot and all that, it might be beneficial to make a starter. Um, if you have a yeast dried yeast packet, and all these need to be treated, you know, appropriately, just like liquid yeast. Uh, if you have a packet that uh, has been treated well and all that, and it's you know more than adequate for the size batch you're doing. I would just do the rehydration step like you're doing and then pitch that. And uh, I think you're good to go. I wouldn't, I'd skip the starter at that point. Yeah. I wouldn't be too concerned about lag time. Um, yeah. Mm. In general, a shorter lag time is better than a long lag time, but keep in mind a lag time is you've pitched the yeast into the wort. They take in nutrients they, you know, they mm -hmm. physically grow in size and then they start reproducing. So depending on how much oxygen is available, depending on how much nutrient is available, depending on, on the amount of yeast that you pitched to the gravity and volume of the wort pitching rate mm -hmm. is all those things are going to affect how long right. that lag time is until the work becomes super saturated with carbon dioxide and you start get bubbling in the airlock. Mm -hmm. So yeah, don't, don't just strive for short lag times or don't start changing, you know, your practices because you're, you're going for the shortest lag time. Uh, go for the best fermentation, which is, as you say, Jamil, taste the final beer, you know, mm -hmm. as your indicator of what you're doing right, right not right. just the lag time. Sure. Sure. There you go. Yeah, good, good points. Taylor, have you ever used a dry, you use more dry yeast, liquid yeast? What are, what are you using? I've used both. I've tried both. Um, I think starting off, I used liquid yeast just because, I mean, it's simpler. You just mm -hmm. open it up and put it in. Right. Make sure that, uh, you know, it's 
refrigerated. Okay. Um, but then I, yeah, I don't know. I tried out dry yeast because I did read things about, I don't know, pros and cons, kind of what yeah. you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there's better population and then you don't have as much of a lag time and whatnot, especially if you like rehydrate it. So yeah, I just took like the extra 15 or 20 minutes and just slowly kind of, you know, woke them up from being, you know, hibernated. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then poured it in an after, and yeah, I mean, I didn't notice any difference between the two in like the final beer, but just yeah. I don't know. I'd like to think that well, it's probably a healthier ferment mm-hmm. the more of a population you have, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we're 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 spoiled, you know, where we all live in that we have easy access to fresh, you know, liquid yeast. And, you know, even, you know, lots of dried yeast as well. A lot of the world, their only choice is to work with dried yeast, Um, you know, shipping and and other things, uh, you know, heat and all that stuff. Um, So I think, you know, being able to make the most of, you know, the tools you have um, and you can make excellent beer with, with dried yeast. I think, um, you know, that first batch is a little, I think you can taste it, uh, but I think once you get past that, especially you know, professional brewery, you kind of go go. There's there's breweries around me that um, use dried yeast because it's vastly cheaper, right? And uh, so they they tend to use dried yeast. Um, right. But you know, again, I think you can taste it. So, uh, but I think in subsequent pitchings, I think you might be you know that's where you really get the the, the value and the benefit. So at some point I need to do more. I need to try some commercial pitches of dry yeast. I haven't really at Heretic. It's all been um, on smaller scale. Mm. So at Heretic, we haven't used it, but I'm curious. I'm curious. Mm. Uh, especially, you know, they keep improving their products. They do. Um, yeah. I've made a lot of, a lot of gains over the past, uh, you know, Two decades that we've been doing the show. That's right. <laughs> so, right. So keep keep Technology that is vastly improved. Right. So so we'll see. Um, yeah, it used to be pretty horrible, honestly, and um, you know a lot of bacteria and things like that. But they really, really, um, uh, yeah. you know, world's Top better. Notch. And same thing for liquid yeast. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's even gotten better. So there you yeah. go. All right. Next question, pressurized fermentation. Uh, Travis uh, from SLO uh, writes, hello guys. I've heard multiple discussions how pressurized fermentation affects yeast activities. Can you summarize what flavor profiles can be expected when, one, fermentation undergoes pressurized airlock restricted, two, fermentation under pressurized, fermenter under partial vacuum, Typical fermentation occurs under atmospheric conditions. What happens if the brewer manipulates this pressure? Can an underpressurized fermentation aid in attenuation? Thanks, dudes. Travis. Well, the as we said in the previous show, I think, um, the effect of pressure on fermentation is on the amount of carbon, dissolved carbon dioxide in solution, the concentration of it. 
Right. And the con- concentration of dissolved carbon dioxide affects yeast growth. Mm-hmm. So more carbon dioxide means less yeast growth, less carbon dioxide means more yeast growth and, you know, concurrent or subsequently either less or more esters, more esters with more yeast growth generally, um, and more higher alcohols too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, fermentations under partial vacuum where you can really pull the carbon dioxide out of solution can greatly increase yeast growth, uh, increase higher alcohol generation uh, and more esters. Um, In fact, I'm looking at a paper and I won't summarize it, but I'm looking at a paper that's going into the Master Brewers Association Tech Quarterly that I'm editing. And um, they did some experiments uh, in consultation with White Labs and University of Florida on this very topic. So, um, yeah, it it does increase uh, these volatile compounds when mm-hmm. you lower the pressure. Right, but right. on the other hand, it's it is not. But if you that want more different. attenuation, if yeah. you want, you know, it, it certainly will. Yes, um, that. That's right. That was the question. Yeah, it's 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 similar to open fermentation in that regard, mm-hmm. where you get uh, better yeast growth, which can uh, improve your attenuation, and at the same time, depending on several factors, increase your esters and volatiles. Well, and a lot of the growth happens prior to CO two saturation. Yes. Um, there is some limiting as the CO2 starts to build up, but a lot of it is just the activity of the yeast, um, you know, post-growth as well gets restricted by CO2 saturation. Yeah. Yeah. You can get the inhibition of acetyl-CoA and the inhibition of esterification of your your acetate esters, which are your primary ethyl ethyl alcohol esters. One of the reasons that, uh, you know, a lot of the British brewers have kind of open fermentation they don't you know i look at it and i'm like you know airlock that you know we have blow off on you know our fermenters that's not that much back pressure how you know it isn't yeah but a but a tiny bit changes the co2 saturation in the liquid and that's enough to impact uh, the character of the beer and one of the things about you know tall skinny fermenters um, you know, builds up, you know, a, a higher level of CO2 saturation as well. And uh, ha- has a, an impact as well. Jay has a fermenter question. Hi, hey, gents. I uh, had a question about uh, Belgian fermenters. Correct me if I'm wrong, but traditional Belgian fermenters are wider and shorter, right? And this puts less pressure on the yeast, which in turn allows yeast to produce more esters. Well, I have an extra 15 and a half gallon Sankey keg that I plan on converting to a fermenter. My initial idea was to use it for 10-gallon batches, but then I had the idea to put 5-gallon batches in it. Would that simulate a shorter, wider Belgian fermenter and help me produce the characteristics of true Belgian beers? Maybe I'm completely misunderstanding this concept, but I thought it was worth asking. Thanks for all the info. Please keep up on keeping on Jay in Omaha. Omaha! Yeah, um, fermenter geometry is a very interesting topic, um, and uh, makes a huge difference in beers. It's yeah. surprising. One of the first uh, when I first started homebrewing, one of the first uh, tests that I did or experiments that I did 
uh, you know, it's was, it was back in the days when, you know, chat rooms were just all, you know, text and, uh, <laughs> and you dialed in with a modem and, you know, people were arguing about fermenter geometry or somebody was or, or, or they were ignoring it or something. I, I forget what it was, but I happened to have, you know, a corny keg. I had, uh, you know, a um, plastic bucket and I had a, a glass carboy, you know, six gallon glass carboy, five gallon pl plastic bucket, five gallon corny keg. And I brew the wort and pitch the yeast. And then I filled the three separate containers and I fermented them out. And lo and behold, they all tasted different. You could pick it out in a triangle test. Wow. And, you know, it just showed me at that point that things like, you know, the kind of square bottom on a, on a bucket, you have a dead corner uh, in the bucket. The carboys are a little more rounded at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And I think that that really aids in the circulation and doesn't have dead corners. And corny kegs, they're tall and skinny. And I think that that impacts and you end up with a lot of dead space. I would not use a corny keg as a fermenter. I think that's a giant mistake. Um, I think you need something wider. I think you need you know more stirring. I think you know the carboy is an yeah. excellent fermenter. So I was I was stunned by that difference. And then you know learning about the you know the fermenters that uh, you know Yorkshire squares and things like that. Um, I think that that makes it makes a huge difference. Um, I'm not sure all Belgian fermenters are low and squat. No, I mean. The one I know for sure is Brasserie de la Seine uh, in, in Brussels. Um, yeah, he uses, um, there's an article about him recently. Um, but yeah, they, they use the wider um, mm -hmm. rectangular some fermenters. And uh, he gets excellent, you know, uh, fermentation character. They're very well maturated. There's no off flavors. They're very clean, very drinkable beers. Um, and, and, and he claims, I, mean, I think, that the fermenter shape has a lot to do with the drinkability of his beers. Absolutely. Um, well, uh, you know, our friends at uh, Jolly Pumpkin. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Where's that? He's using open uh, square fermenters, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that has a, a benefit to it. Um, you know, yes, I think, uh, you know, if your, your ratio, like you're talking before, John, about CO2 saturation, right. You know, the, the lower and, and wider your, your fermenter, uh, liquid surface, you know, the, the more the surface, the more you're going to off gas, you know, CO2 yeah. and, uh, you know, the shorter that is, um, and, you know, it, it's fascinating to me, you know, open fermentation, you know, in a world of bugs and stuff like that works really well. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, that's how beer originally came to be. So it's, um, you know, something that, you know, certainly is worth trying. Will it be, you know, the, the solution to what you're, you're looking for? I don't know. Now, Taylor, when you, when you were uh, touring through Europe with your band, did you, uh, you know, get a chance to try any Belgian beers? Did you go through uh, Belgium or? Yeah, we went uh, through Brussels. Um, 
I went to, I forgot, this little, it was a, what do you call it? It's like a sour tap room. Words to bite? Something Lambique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just had like a bunch of Cantillon on tap. and Yeah, no breweries though. I wasn't able to go to a brewery uh, that time around. But I've been to Cantillon itself mm-hmm. a couple years back in 2017. Yep. Yeah, they're, they're there. Thing. Yeah, because it's like in this little attic, just this mm-hmm. small barn. And yeah, it's all open fermentation and there's a bunch of cobwebs everywhere. <laughs> there's a bunch of signs that say, please don't. <laughs> don't clean these. <laughs> Leave them alone. Right. Because it's, yeah, because it's good for everything. Okay, we're going to take a short break. When we come back. We'll have more of your questions right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. Uh, We're talking yeast and fermentation. Here's another one. Uh, Felix asks a quick one for you. Love the show, by the way. Repitching. If I say if I need say eighty-seven mil to brew my work, this will give me one hundred and seventy-three billion cells. Why would I make a starter? That would give me a lot more. Felix. Um, you know, if you're repitching yeast and it's it's fresh and healthy, let's say you you've just harvested off of your last batch, you rinse it. You're ready to pitch in your next batch. There's no need to make a starter. Go, go, go. If you're harvesting it and, you know, it's been sitting there for a while and, um, you know, a few days, a week, uh, two weeks, you definitely want to put that into a bit of starter work. You don't have to have a stir plate and all that. I would just add it to some work, get it kind of going, get it to, to, to look active. And then, uh, you know, pitch that in. And the reason you do is just to ensure that you have a, a viable uh, yeast culture uh, and that everything is, is good to go. Because uh, I've had a case where, uh, you know, I've harvested some yeast and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, you know, the whole thing was dead. Mm-hmm. Um, so always good to, to kind of check it and, and you know, essentially yeah. proof it. Mm-hmm. And if not for this batch, then the next batch, if you're harvesting again, because weak yeast fermenting and being harvested can really impact downstream. Yeah. You don't want your stream affected. Taylor can tell you about that. I mean, you like, it's not want your stream affected. All right. That'll, that'll get you out of the industry like quick. Oh, instantly. You'll yeah. never get a call back. All right. If you can't stream, uh, Reben Denmark asks, first of all, thank you for a great show. I haven't heard them all yet, but I'm working on it. I have a question about over under pitching. I can't figure out how the yeast knows. <laughs> if a wort has an OG of 1040 and I put a million yeast cells in, how can the yeast cells know if there are five liters of wort or five gallons? After a while, the yeast will produce alcohol and other waste products that the other yeast cells might be able to sense and to react to. But till then, how can the yeast know if I'm pitching correctly? If I put two cells in five liters of wort, they should reproduce until the inhibitor kicks in and tells them to start producing alcohol. 
but apparently they get stressed instead and puke at my word. <laughs> if I put 2 billion cells in five liters of wort, they should very rapidly switch to producing alcohol instead of reproducing, but again, they get stressed. Assuming the concentration of waste products is the key, I ought to put the entire starter into the wort instead of pouring most of it in the sink and only leave enough to make a slurry. But if it's only the number of cells, there is no reason to put all of the starter in the wort. So all in all, I have two questions. I would like to understand how the yeast knows, uh, and I would like to know how far it is from underpitching bad enough to taste it till overpitching bad enough to taste it in order to make good brew. I suppose I could just buy the yeast book you wrote, but haven't <laughs> finished designing great beers and brewing classic styles yet. So I hope you can find a couple of minutes in a Q&A show to answer my questions. Thanks again for some very interesting shows. Best regards, proven Denmark. Um, right. So the way the yeast, so there, I mean, there's a couple of things. Um, yeast don't necessarily just reproduce endlessly. Um, one of the limiting factors is, you know, budding scars. So a, a cell will bud a certain amount of times and then the surface becomes, it leaves a scar every time it buds off a new cell and that area can't be used to bud again. So eventually a yeast cell becomes so scarred up that it can't produce any more uh, little children yeast. Um, that and then every time a yeast cell buds, it uses you know, a portion of its, you know, uh, nutrients, its sterols, its other right. material to form that new yeast cell, which is kind of limited by the amount of material it has to bud off again. So generally you're limited to about a four to five times the amount of yeast you pitch as growth. It'll, it limits itself based off of that. It's not pollution in the environment. It is Nutrients. nutrients and uh you know material now yeast will grow indefinitely but that's because if you feed them appropriately they can keep reproducing so one of the things that we do in really high gravity beers is uh you know we'll we'll feed them oxygen at the beginning which they use to make uh you know sterols which are used to make the the, the cells pliable which are used to control the in and out of sugars and waste products and we will on a high gravity beer give them another dose of oxygen uh you know part way through uh you know eight to 20 hours or whatever it would be uh depending on other factors so give them a dose of oxygen up front, give them a dose of oxygen a little later on, and that helps them, again, you know, do more growth. So that's kind of what's limiting the growth. What's limiting, um, so that's why if you put two cells in, what limits, um, if you put a lot of cells in a small amount of wort, um, what happens is, um, I don't know exactly how they, <laughs> determine that they're out of nutrients, but they, they pretty much uh, kind of figure out that um, 
well, they use up certain of the compounds in the present of the word, you know, oxygen and things like that, uh, mainly oxygen. And they decide, well, we're, we're done. There's no more, you know, um, rebuilding of, you know, the, the materials to, you know, create more yeast cells. So time to switch to fermentation and generally oxygen based. Um, and that's what switches them. Yeah. They're, they don't know. I mean, they don't have, you know, wireless communications to say, okay, we're done. <laughs> it's time to reproduce. It's, you know, there are different proportions of that population at each stage of growth. Some are still taking in nutrients and physically growing in size. Others have already done that and they are re reproducing and, and budding. Others have, you know, gotten to the end of their budding cycle for whatever reason and have stopped. So you have, I mean, everything's going on at once. Um, in dry yeast populations where they have purposely grown and cycled the yeast, yeah, you have more yeast at the same general phase at any one time. But, uh, you know, especially in a repitch situation, you're going to have, it's all varied. Um, so it's, they sense nutrient levels, they sense food levels, they sense waste product levels. Um, I think all those, those factors affect um, how much of any one activity they're doing at any one time. Yeah. Mainly, I think in relation to this question is either they limit out on, you know, what yeah. they can do, which is, you know, nutrient and mainly oxygen based Yeah. Uh, before they kick into fermentation. Mm -hmm. um, there you go. And you can add more oxygen and keep them from really going into fermentation and doing more growth. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. We got two more questions. I hope we can get through. Uh, Joe asks, uh, I pitched yeast at uh, 82 degrees or so, but it cooled down rapidly before any airlock activity. So we're fermenting steadily in my basement for about a week now. What are the consequences of my actions? Mm, probably not too serious. You may have gotten a little more initial growth and, and initial rapid growth, which could have created more byproducts, more acetaldehyde. Um, Diacetyl. Yeah. Depends and, on, the, on, the, on the, the yeast. Yeah, depends on the yeast and, and the oxygen, a lot of factors. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, if you give the, the fermentation sufficient time and, and your, your pitching area was such that it's able to maturate all those, those compounds, it'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the biggest danger, I think, is, you know, you get something started and then you rapidly chill it down. How rapid is rapid? Um, if the yeast have already kind of gone through most of their cycle and they're fermenting and then it gets really cold compared to what they started with and depending on the strain of yeast, maybe they shut down. Yeah. And then you stall your fermentation. That would mm -hmm. be like the, the worst case scenario, I think. Yeah. yeah. It'd be fine. Brew it, drink it. Yep. Uh, last one. Chris Beertastic in the BN forum asks, uh, Jay-Z and Palmer, I recently purchased and assembled a temperature controller and I picked up a fridge. The controller is a two-stage love controller. That, is that what they use in the porn industry, Steve? Is it a two-stage love controller or is it like a three we or a four? We used to use a four-stage. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Because because uh, it's got to be it. one for every hole, or yeah. so you have substitutes, huh? Right, Type team. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, poor stage love the most. The merrier. I figured out the programming, but I need some advice on temperature settings. Say I want to ferment at 67 Fahrenheit. I program both set points at 67. Then I need to program the temperature differentials for each set point. Should I set both of them at the 0.5 Fahrenheit? That way the firm wrap would kick in at 66.5 and the cooling would kick in at 67.5. I realized that the fridge is probably going to run a lot more than the firm wrap. Is having the cooling differential set at 0.5 going to cause my fridge to run too often and potentially cause damage to the compressor? Mm-hmm. Do you think having the differential so close will cause the heating and cooling to run back to back and fight each other? Thanks, Chris. P.S. The BN in your books have helped me make substantially better beer. All right, Taylor, what do you think? Um, I've used differentials. I think it, that's pretty close, man. I used to use one one degree to like 1.5 you can even go two mm-hmm. like it doesn't I, I feel like it doesn't two degrees of difference for what 30 minutes at, at max is, mm-hmm. is not gonna feel do that much to your your beer and your ferment that's just my go. opinion if you're worried about yeah like running out your compressor because it's always flicking on and off it's like yeah just i don't think there's an issue with putting that differential further giving it a little more leeway yeah yeah uh john yeah i I use two degrees myself yeah Yeah. and uh yeah so you know i'm i'm operating within maybe you know a four degree window six degree window Mm -hmm. and and that's good you know i'm not stressing the yeast and not stressing the compressor Mm -hmm. yeah and my first take on it was um when I used a two-stage controller for my fridge, um, I had the wrap on the ales, and I had the uh, other probe just sitting out in the on the on the other fermenter on a logger. And so the fridge would run to make sure the logger was cold, but the the firm wrap would keep the other uh, you know. Uh, fermentation warm. warm enough so i could do loggers and ales in the same fridge cool. um i'm not yeah i'm not sure you really need that much control and that yeah. precise a control over you know one fermentation and yeah if you back to back them like that off a half a degree yeah. well yeah i think you will kill your compressor although you know if you if your compressor has any short cycle which it probably does in any sort of fridge um you're you may have it set that way but it's not going to cycle more than every 20 minutes just because the fridge is built that way so yeah yeah, hard to say um i wouldn't i wouldn't do that usually what i did was you know it's warm out and so i need the fridge and you know uh fermentation will keep it warm as long as i'm measuring the temperature of the beer you know, the fridge won't run unless it's getting higher than that. And it really won't get colder than that because the general environment is warmer. And so I don't have to worry about it getting too cold. Um, if I'm doing loggers, I ne- really need to worry about, again, it getting too warm. So, you know, that I'm putting cooling on that, you know, in a different temp. So 
generally I just used a one stage controller on, on everything. Mm -hmm. And then when I used a two stage, it was because I wanted to control, you know, two, two fermenters and two different ferments. Mm -hmm. There you go. Um, Lots of good questions. I like the one from Denmark about the, uh, how the yeast know. That was a good question. It was very, very insightful. Yeah. Uh, And a question I don't think we really have fully answered before. That was fun. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for coming out. Uh, uh, Porno Steve and uh, my my brother, uh, John Palmer and all you folks uh, on Facebook and you people in the podcast. Um, We'll be back in another week to to do a couple more shows and maybe we'll post them that we're going to do them. (laughs) (laughs) We just haven't because who knows what's going to happen. But one thing I want to say is make sure you support our fine sponsors. If you want to keep hearing the show, the five of you that are left, I think you should, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, support our, our fine sponsors, uh, Blickman Engineering, BlickmanEngineering.com, Root Chatter, RootChatter.com. All great folks, really passionate about, you know, you making great beer. So uh, don't forget them. They're, they're an important part of, of everything that goes on. So until then, everybody, Bruce Strong. Bruce Strong, everyone. We still need a Horn of Steve. I know. Yeah. Peace we out. Need to make, make one up. <laughs> peace in? Is, is that yeah. Yeah. Peace in, yeah. peace out. Yeah, yeah. Peace in, peace out. He did a lot of peace in, peace out. Uh, right, right. There we go. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Goodbye.